following recording is a production of WUTZ 88.3 FM on the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. As we start 2016, our new series on intentional communities will air. These shows will include interviews with Phil Schweitzer from the Farm Community in Summertown, Tennessee, Makeway Ludwig from Dancing Rabbit Eco Village in Missouri, and John Holly from the Twelve Tribes Community in Pulaski, Tennessee. This week's show, we interview Makeway Ludwig, Executive Director of Dancing Rabbit Eco Village. She's also a member of the Board of Directors of the Fellowship for International Community and is the director and lead teacher for EcoVillage Education U.S., an organization that develops experiential courses in sustainable culture leadership development. As we spotlight diverse international communities, we discuss with Maikwe how Dancing Rabbit EcoVillage in rural Missouri started as an experiment in natural building and has become a resource for anyone wanting to learn more about sustainable living and ecological opportunities. You can tell us a little bit about your community. I know people can go online and, and check it out, but they've been talking here at the farm about your elevator speech uh, about your project. So what would be your elevator speech about the Dancing Rabbit Eco Village? What would be my elevator speech? Well, what I would say is that we are a um, sustainable living demonstration project in rural Missouri, and we are working toward the goal of living on about 10% of the resources of your average American. And that's our goal in part because that's what the climate scientists and the resources scientists are telling us we're going to have to get to if we're really going to do sustainability. And so we're a place where we're making a um, sincere and concerted effort to not only live that way but also document what we're doing so that it's shareable with other people. And if you could tell us, what does it mean to be part of an intentional community in your perspective? Well, I think it means different things to different people. I mean, there's, there are many, many different types of intentional communities out there in the world, and pretty much if you can come up with a, a good or interesting thing to do in the world, someone at some point has tried to form an intentional community around that concept. Uh, what I think they all have in common, though, is that you end up living more closely with other people, and so there is a um, a social dynamic and a social challenge to living in community really for all of us, and one of the things that we get that um, is becoming increasingly important as far as how we conceptualize what being a healthy human is, is that we get daily, regular contact with other people who know us and who care about us, and that's a big quality of life issue for a lot of people. So I think that's probably what every community has in common. Can you tell us a brief history of the movement for intentional communities, like the official uh, version, especially being a, a board member of the, the Fellowship of Intentional Community? Um, sure. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the official, I don't know that there's an official history. Um, the history, the way that I tell it is that the, you know, the great, 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 great granddaddies of the intentional communities movement in a lot of ways were Jesus and Buddha. You know, they were these spiritual leaders who, um, basically said to their followers, you're going to do better if you are actually with other people who are focused on a spiritual life. And 
you know, obviously not all intentional communities are religious or spiritual. In fact, most of them aren't. Um, but that is part of where our roots come from is that idea of, you know, simple living and a, you know, a values-based and spiritually focused living. I mean, that is what some of our roots are. Um, we also have other strands of roots of this movement that are in the um, cooperatives movement that started in the late 1800s in, uh, in England and, you know, was really an economic justice movement originally. And so there's a whole strand of, you know, sort of radical politics that runs through the intentional communities movement. And uh, really what all of us are doing is that we're trying to create some bubble of a social space where we can do things differently than the main culture is doing it, whether that's uh, moving more quickly towards some radical goal or trying to preserve something that seems to be getting lost in that wider culture. Um, both of those are common motivations for it, and there's lots of different types of intentional communities that um, that are within either one of those strands, either creating something new or trying to preserve something. So, but uh, in the U.S., um, what, what prompted the intentional community movement and uh, we did a show called What the Hippies Got Right, and we were talking about how alternative uh, ideas uh, weren't cool back then, but now they're cool, and now it's hip to be green and to be interested in ecology and stuff like that. So where does all this stuff come from? Yeah, well, there's actually an interesting thing about that that I've learned recently. I um, have recently gotten connected with a man named Matt Stannard, who is in the process of writing... Um, a book called The American Commons. And what Stannard traces in that book is that actually we have a deeply communal history in the United States, and it's not the history that's taught in our schools. Um, but, you know, in some ways, the, our original, the original people who came here from Europe were about creating an intentional community. They were not interested in what was happening in England, and a lot of them actually got kicked out of England. And so they came here originally to try to do something different. And, of course, early American history is very problematic, but in a lot of ways, our earliest roots as a country are much more communal than what we've been taught. And so in some ways, what we've seen is that we've moved away from our communal roots, and now we're sort of moving slowly back toward them, and we're recognizing that we've gotten ourselves into ecological crises and kind of psychological crises as a culture, and intentional communities are more and more being seen as a solution to those modern problems. But I don't think this is a new thing. I actually think it's a fluke that we uh, moved away so much from our communal roots in this country and, you know, moved toward being so hyper-independent and... Um, sort of materialistically oriented and really selfishly oriented, and I think we're really just seeing a swing back um, toward those original roots. And so when that book comes out next year, The American Commons, I really encourage people interested in intentional community to pick that up and to check out what's, what's a different read on American history than the one that we've really been handed. So the, the farm uh, went from being a commune and to becoming a co-op because of practicalities and financial concerns. Um, so when someone would say, well, all this um, green living and communal living and all that stuff is great, but in the changing world, in the real world, uh, that stuff is not sustainable, what would you say in, in response? Well, I actually, I mean, first of all, I always flinch a little bit at the phrase the real world because it's like, you know, my world in community is no more or less real than anybody who has like a nine-to-five job. 
And in fact, I think that the life that we're living in intentional communities, when we do it well, and not every community figures out how to do it well, but when we do it well is actually um, more real in a lot of ways. It's more authentic. It's more directly connected to life force. You know, if you get your food directly out of your garden and if you get your security from actual human beings living next door to you, there's an authenticity to that that I think is actually very powerful. Um, and so I, I sort of push back against the real world label a lot of times. I actually think what we're living in the U.S. right now is fairly unreal and fairly, um, I mean, I wouldn't say false, but there's a, there's a sort of made-upness to it that, uh, that I think flies in the face of authenticity. And I also think that what we're figuring out in the communities movement is how to live sustainably. I mean, if we're doing something in the communities movement where groups like Dancing Rabbit Eco Village, where I live, are able to actually model living a high-quality, socially connected life on about 10% of the resources of your average American, um, then we're actually paving the way for one option for what a sustainable future might look like. So I actually think that what we're doing is deeply tied in with real sustainability. So what would you say to young families who might think communes and eco-villages are only good for single people who are trying to try new things, but when it comes down to resources for schooling and housing, that it might be more limited um, for bigger households than just young hippies who want to go check out alternative living? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, many communities are a very positive place for families to live. And, you know, we have... I think we have 11 kids at this point at Dancing Rabbit. We have about 65 people total, and 11 of them are kids. And um, the kids have done different things over different periods of time. I mean, when, when my son, my son is now 18, and he's off at college and sort of launched into the world. But when he was a young person at Dancing Rabbit, um, there was a mix of homeschooling and public schooling happening with his crop of kids. And the younger kids that are here are all being homeschooled, and there's now a kind of critical mass of kids about the same age where we're being able to do basically a homeschooling collective among the families that are here now. And what you see in these kids is that they come out of community life, and they have social skills that are way ahead of their peers. Uh, they have a sense of I mean, I would say groundedness and a sense of being in their bodies that I don't see a lot of kids having. And I think it's actually a very positive environment um, to raise children, as long as you're choosing a community carefully so that it's a good match with what your family's values are and, you know, you're, you're choosing it based on what kind of, kind of an environment you want to raise your kids in. I think it's actually a very positive thing. Um, I could tell you a story from that my son came back from his first semester at college, and um, he said, you know, I've realized two things this semester. Number one is we actually eat real food. And, like, he had never been in a place where, like, the food was really crappy, and he got off to college and suddenly went, oh, my God, <laughs> we're doing this really cool agricultural thing in this place that I lived, and he hadn't really appreciated that. Um, but then the second thing that he said was really interesting to me. He said... I don't understand why when a couple people have to spend an entire semester hanging out with each other and interacting, they don't work that out with each other. And so for him, he had come out of an environment where 
conflict resolution and mutual respect and a whole host of other things are the norm. And he got out there into the wider culture and he realized, like, people really just check out from their relationships with each other when they get into any kind of tension with each other. And he was watching that play out in his classes and was just appalled. And so he was really raised in a very different culture, and I think that's one of the key things that we're doing in community is we're creating really different pockets of culture. Uh, but he could feel it really strongly when he got off to college for the first time, which I thought was really interesting. I don't want to push you too much on this, but because um, you know I've met people from um, different generations of um, people who were part of our rural school or our alternative school, and you can see different perspectives. Like some children feel, well, some adults now felt that their childhood was great and they got to do everything they wanted and they got to be part of a, a, a different type of culture than what we know in society. Other people felt that they, it's not that they were missing out on the sports and the, and the events and stuff like that, but more that a lot of the very idealistic and utopian ideas um, kind of, kept them sheltered from the reality of, of the world. So it's like a mixed bag to see people who, who say that their education was wonderful and they were more advanced when they got to college. And other people felt like they were behind. And other people felt like they, uh, they couldn't really survive in the real world after leaving the place and they have struggles or resentments or, and they had, to, they had to take remedial classes. So, um, is it based on the individual or is it, um, uh, just depending on who's running the school or the community working together to not allow those things to happen? Well, I mean, I think there's a few things going on there. And I definitely, I, you are absolutely right. People have mixed um, stories about their childhoods when they grow up in alternative environments. That is 100% true. Um, so the first thing I would say is that I think those of us who are adults and who are creating these communities are under an obligation to do it well, to not just, you know, um, put things together in a random sort of way, but actually to think carefully about what we're doing and how we're constructing these environments. And and that's hard to do because we're having to really make it up from scratch. And so I do think that we sometimes let ourselves off the hook in the more alternative world of like, oh, well, I'm doing this really cool thing, so I don't have to think about quality and I don't have to think about... Um, you know, giving my kids a really solid education and critical thinking skills and all that kind of stuff. And so I think sometimes we don't do a good enough job with that in the communities movement. And so that's the first part. Um, the second part, though, is that I don't want us to hold ourselves to a significantly different standard than we're holding the rest of the culture. I mean, very few of us are doing the same things that our parents did. Very few of us these days follow directly in our parents' footsteps. And so when people come out of an intentional community scene and then they say, oh, well, my childhood was a little weird and I don't want to do this, it's like how different is that really from, um, you know, all of our parenting peers out there who aren't doing something alternative? Uh, and so I think the fact that some of our kids have a great experience and feel like I had a terrific childhood is is a win, and the fact that we didn't do everything perfect is like, kind of par for the course. Like, I think a lot of us who grew up in the wider culture had really unhappy childhoods and felt like we weren't prepared. And it's like, I think we've got to cut ourselves some slack about this and not expect that we have to have a 100% success rate where all of our kids commit to community living or we've somehow failed. I think that's just a crazy standard to some extent. So speaking about wanting to 
get the message out to the greater world, what are the values that your uh, eco-village wants the world to uh, experience or to give a chance or to try out? Because, again, I feel that a lot of time it's just preaching to the choir and people are already interested in alternative communities. So what can you say to the average uh, American that um, that you guys are doing that would be great to incorporate into their lives? Right. Um, well, so so one thing is that we so we have a nonprofit at Dancing Rabbit, and we've just gone through actually um, changing our name to the nonprofit, which is our education and outreach branch. And the name that we landed on was the Center for Sustainable and Cooperative Culture. And so I think those two things, sustainability and cooperative culture, are really the things that Dancing Rabbit is interested interested in promoting in that wider culture. And what I would say, and what I do say, I mean, I was on a national speaking tour last month for five, last year for five months and got a chance to speak to a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. And, you know, the thing that I'm emphasizing is our, our culture in the wider culture has gotten us to a place where our climate is literally coming apart at the seams. And it hasn't worked. We need to be doing something differently. And whatever it is that you think you want to do with your life, you can't do it if the planet is falling apart. And so on a very fundamental level, we need to be rethinking things like our economy, things like how we treat our ecological environment, how we treat each other. And intentional communities are one place where we can do the sort of, you know, R&D work, the research and development work to really figure out what can that actually look like. Um, because we're going to need alternatives. We already need alternatives, but it's going to be getting more and more pressing as things start going downhill more and more with climate change. Uh, and I strongly encourage people to choose it before you get forced into it. I think it's much easier to make changes in your life when you're doing those from a place of um, volunteerism um, rather from a place of desperation. And so my hope is that we can get some of these models spread you know, wider sooner rather than later so that more people are being able to actually be at choice with this stuff. So I have an example of um, the difficulty of communicating certain things uh, to certain people. Um, I'm from Mexico, and, you know, so a third world country, very polluted, and I have a friend from India who's very conservative and has pretty much um, fallen for all the, the conservative um, anti-regulation, anti uh you know, everything that they were fighting against uh, ideas. And he was um, sharing all this like, oh, well, you know, putting regulations on pollution uh, is bad for companies and this and that. And I said, uh, maybe the the way we communicate things, like when we talk about climate change, when we talk about stuff, like I hear Amy Goodman and people in democracy now, like, speaking very like apocalyptic terms and almost sounding like a doomsday preacher and it, it turns me off. So maybe some people get turned off because of, of some of the beliefs or ideas that people have from the climate change movement um, camp. But my, my thing is like, why don't we talk about how pollution is bad, how you don't want to live in a, in a, you know, here they call it environmental racism where, uh, poor, poor immigrants and and minorities live in in dumps and all the fumes and all the stuff gets on you. In India and in Mexico, that's how it is for a lot of people. But when when you come to the U.S., a lot of people live in 
in a in a different world like they think all that stuff doesn't affect them so i feel that maybe a lot of stuff gets lost in translation like we're all talking about the same thing we want the best thing for our children but when certain words kind of turn people off and it's, it sounds like it's it's just kind of pie in the sky stuff so do you think that that has something to do with getting people or or is it just all about research and showing them facts and figures like kind of like um the vice president uh trying to get people because now it turns out that, that he was right in a lot of stuff he was saying well i i mean i think that it's important to when you're trying to communicate with different groups of people to find out what's important to them i mean if their if their angle on it is anti-regulation I mean, there's a lot of regulations on the books that actually make it very difficult to do things like start intentional communities. I mean, you could have an anti-regulation conversation with someone about, yeah, let's free people up to be able to actually live the lifestyles that they're most excited about living. And so I think there's an angle on that that you could actually get in there. But part of it is that if you're really going to sit down and get into a conversation with someone to to listen as much as you're talking. I mean, this is a little, you know, we're doing an interview, and so I'm going to be talking for a lot of this hour. Um, but when I sit down and talk to somebody who is more conservative, I try to focus first on listening and getting a handle on, like, what is really important to this person. Um, the other thing that I think connects a lot of us together is compassion. I think a lot of people who are very conservative um, I mean, they've gotten to conclusions that don't make sense to me, but they've started oftentimes from a place of care for their families, for their local communities, and that kind of stuff, and really connecting to, like, what's the actual human impact of some of these policies and really leaning into, like, where can we find a compassionate answer that makes sense to uh, to both of us? And that is often a place where I find I'm able to connect with people across a wide range of political orientations. Um, so, so those would be the kinds of things that I'd suggest in that kind of a situation. Um, the other thing is that when I talk about climate change, I do very little science and lots of human impact and lots of, hey, here's 10 different ways that you can engage around climate change and If you don't agree with eight of them, that's totally fine with me. I don't need you to agree with all eight of these things. But what are the two things that really do grab you and that do sound interesting and do sound like they're up your alley and really giving people lots of options for how to engage? What about when some people say that uh, ecological conservation trumps the ability for people to tap into resources? Uh, you know, there are so, so much uh, forest that that could be used for housing and people are like worried about the insects and the and the animals and the trees uh what would be the the balance that can be found between both of those concerns well i think you have to get a lot bigger than that immediate conversation um you know one of the projects that I'm in the process of starting up is a new project that's working on public dialogue and policy development with the goals of bringing together economic justice and ecological justice. And I think those two things are often, like, pitted against each other in the way that our public dialogue works. You know, like we, you know, the environmentalists are restricting access to resources. Like, that's one of the common ways that it's... Um, that it's framed, and I think, you know, this organization is called the Materialized Empathy Project, and it's a project of um, an established organization called Commonomics USA. 
And what we're really interested in is, like, let's reframe that dialogue. Like, how can we actually have economics and ecology working together to actually create a better life for all of us, regardless of where we are on the political spectrum, and work at really developing policies that are going to serve both of those needs at the same time. I think we often do get very into these kind of either-or dynamics that actually aren't that helpful. And a lot of us in intentional community have been working with consensus for a long time, which you know can be problematic and can be a complete pain in the ass, but actually trains you to get bigger than a lot of these contradictions. And so I want to take that training that's come out of all my years in the intentional communities movement and start applying it to public policy level conversations and, you know, look at how do we manage our forests in such a way that it's beneficial to the common people rather than just these large corporations, for instance, so that we still can cut down a certain number of trees and have them managed in such a way that it doesn't destroy the local environment um, and is still positive for the economy. So I don't think those two things are necessarily in tension with each other, but they sure seem like it the way that we've got our politics framed right now. So, um, you know, some people would say that people who have chosen uh, an alternative lifestyle, alternative living, that um, they want everybody to join them and it becomes like this mission. What would you say to to most people who might not be interested in having a green house or moving to a commune, but what can they do in their personal lives to uh, help in the ecological fight for sustainability? Yeah, and I, I mean, I would really focus on the um, things that reduce carbon emissions because I think that's our most critical uh, uh, issue that we have going right now. Like, if we don't get a handle on this climate thing, we're not going to get much of a chance to argue about all this other stuff. Is sort of the way that I've got it framed, which is a little apocalyptic, but I think that is actually what the science is telling us at this point. Um, and so the things that I focus on for that, like the five things that I think are the biggest leverage points, are driving less and not flying, like looking at what's the carbon footprint of your transportation choices. Um, the second one is, you know, reducing your energy consumption as ge in general, but then finding a way to switch to green energy, and whether that's putting a solar panel on your house or teaming up with some neighbors and getting a solar array together or working with your local company to try to get them to switch over to having green power options. Like somehow or another getting onto solar and wind power as your main energy source. Um, the third biggest leverage point is less meat and uh, more organic stuff. I mean, those uh, food choices make a big difference in terms of our carbon footprints. And about 30% of our greenhouse gas emissions from our food choices are just from red meat. And so that's pork, beef, and lamb. And so if you can reduce or eliminate those things from your diets, that's going to make a big difference. Um, and then the last two things that I would say are sort of general principles. One is localize everything. Like get your food local, um, live within walking distance to your place of work or your kid's school or whatever it is. You know, just get as local as you can possibly get with stuff, um, including like your vacations. You know, not flying to Spain or whatever it is that, you know, people think are like the, the ultimate sexy vacations, but, you know, being able to actually do as much of your entertainment locally as possible. Um, and then the last one is just consuming less, period. I mean, every time you buy something from the store, there is a carbon footprint attached to that thing. 
And so the more we can be really reducing our consumption, uh, the better off we're all going to be in terms of our carbon footprints. And you know, I've been amazed at how vibrant the um, storage unit business is. You know, we have all this crap that we buy, and like a lot of it we don't even use, and that that stuff ends up just sitting there. And so we're really sort of in a hyper-consumptive culture, and anything that you can do to just reduce the amount of consumption you're doing in general, that's going to help the planet a lot. So those would be the places where I would focus. Uh, so what do you guys do to attract new people, young idealists, and is there a cap in the amount of people that can join your community? Yeah, so we are currently about 65 people, and we have talked about wanting to grow to be a village that is more on the scale of 500 to 1,000 people. So we do not have a cap right now in terms of how many new people could join Dancing Rabbit. Um, we have a very active website, which is just dancingrabbit.org, um, that people can go and check out. And we have a visitor program that is a three-week program that we um, strongly encourage people who are thinking about moving here to come and do that program and you know, really get a chance to uh, get a sense of like what is this community really like. Uh, I think it's hard if you only come someplace for a few days or a week or even 10 days to really start getting a feel for it, so we encourage people to come for that full three-week visitor program. Um, we also have uh, work exchange opportunities every summer where people can come for anywhere from a month to, I guess our longest work exchanges have probably been seven or eight months even. And so people have the opportunity to come and uh, check it out and live here. And so we do, um, we also do a fair bit of outreach. You know, I was on a speaking tour last year. We have a webinar series about low carbon living that we produced uh, late last year. And so there's a lot of opportunities to sort of get a feel for what we're doing here um, through, you know, those options. But I really recommend people really need to come and have a nice long visit before they decide to move somewhere. Um, I think it's really, really hard to get a feel for a place unless you spend some real time there. Um, yeah, so those are some of the things that we do around encouraging people to come here. And nope, there's no cap right now on our membership numbers. Okay, I was reading your bio, and you mentioned spirituality several times. So um, a lot of, you said that not every community has spiritual foundation, but what is the role of spirituality in your community and the, the big question is um, New Age philosophy. I, I think that people don't really talk about it, but when you really, uh, you know, when you see some of the conferences that happen in relation to uh, intentional communities or a lot of the groups that started in the 70s, they, there is a lot of New Age or eclectic um, kind of, I don't know if it's the right word, syncretistic uh, religion kind of ideas. Uh, so is how much is that uh, an element in your community? Well, I do think that there's a that there's a lot of overlap in the populations of people who are interested in intentional communities and people who are interested in um, you know non dogmatic religious traditions and new age traditions and that sort of thing. And so, so you're definitely right in identifying that overlap. Um, we are not a spiritual community here at Dancing Rabbit. We are um, officially a secular community, and there's a pretty wide range of how interested people are in spirituality here. There's um, 
you know, there's pagan groups and there's definitely a, a thread of, like, meditators and Buddhist-oriented people here. Um, we have some Christians who live here. We've had Jewish people who've lived here before. So um, we, you know, that, that bumper sticker that's, that says coexist and it's written in all of those different um, symbols of different religions. I mean, I think we do a pretty good job of embodying that kind of coexist energy here at Dancing Rabbit where it's not, you know, you're not required to have any kind of spiritual orientation. Um, we certainly have people who are atheists or agnostics here as well. Um, but we do pretty good with, you know, respecting each other's, uh, you know, whatever each other's choices are around that kind of thing. We try to not make that a big deal or to see it really as a positive diversity to the community. Well, speaking of diversity, um, I was talking to one of the founders of the farm and we were sharing how when you think about it, the environmental movement uh, is usually made out of mostly uh, middle to upper middle class uh, white Americans and the social justice and political movements are made up of minorities from the urban setting. So uh, what is the diversity like in your community and the challenge that I give people about wanting uh, ratios or token people from different parts of the world, whatever, is that people can be diverse individually. They can have multiple backgrounds or interests, and it doesn't have to be like specifically based on race or ethnic background. Well, I would say that Dancing Rabbit's a pretty big mixed bag as far as that goes. I mean, we've done pretty well with class diversity and not very well with race diversity. Um, we live, I know the farm is in a, like you are in a, a rural Tennessee county and that's pretty darn white and we are in a very similar situation here. Our county is actually 99.9% white and we have had people of color who have lived at Dancing Rabbit at different times and they've had varied experiences here. Some of them have felt like it was um, a very positive place to be a person of color and some people have felt like it wasn't. Um, and certainly when you go into town, if people gawk at you because you have darker skin, then that's pretty uncomfortable. And so, and some of that is stuff that Dancing Rabbit doesn't really have control over. Um, so it's been mixed, and um, there's a group of us who about a year ago started our first anti-racism group in the community, and that's been very positive, and I think we've been uncovering uh, ways through doing that work that we could definitely be doing better and could be a more positive environment for people of color to be here. Um, and that said, you know, it's not clear to us that that's actually the best way for us to be diversifying our community. Like you say, there's lots of different kinds of diversity. Um, and also given where we located that, you know, which is a decision we can't really change at this point, you know, 18 years into it, uh, I'm not actually sure that it would be a positive thing to be encouraging a bunch of people of color to move here just because the county is so um, so incredibly white. Um, so I think it's complicated, and uh, and like I say, we have not done as well with racial diversity as I think we would like to. But um, the challenge I would have for uh, for communities is the idea of the financial um, burden or the you know. Someone said once that uh, the reason that certain ethnic groups weren't interested in intentional communities was because they've had a different um, situation financially and that um, it's more difficult for them to make that jump as other groups. So has your community thought about grants or possibilities, not to have like people kind of being busted in, but more like have 
opportunities to make it a little bit easier. And then I would challenge the idea that if the place is not that uh, racially diverse, the whole state or whatever, that people might not be uh, prejudiced or they just haven't been exposed or haven't met people from different cultures. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, yeah, this is good. It's a great question, and there's actually a whole bunch of different things in there. I mean, so one thing is that just to give you a sense of our basic community, um, like what our finances are like, we live on about a quarter of your U.S. average of money per person, and so we're a fairly... Um, it's a fairly low bar in terms of, like, you don't have to have a ton of money in order to live here. And that said, there are still people here who struggle financially because we live in a county. It's like we don't have, there's not like a job market that people can just plug into here. And so we talk a lot about economic issues in general. And this is one of the many strands that comes up sometimes is, like, if we want to be more ethnically diverse, that we need to do a better job of, um, having our financial lives be easier for more people. Um, so so all of that is really complicated. And I don't know that we've really thought about doing, you know, something like scholarships or a program like that. I think we feel like we have um, other economic issues that we need to solve before we get there. Um, I also think that some of this is out of all of our hands in the intentional communities movement in terms of the economic stuff. You know, we are living in a country where... Um, economic inequity is getting wider every year, and that's affecting many small communities, not just intentional communities, but small towns all over the place, and it's affecting many populations. And so I think that um, I think there's a certain amount of these issues are going to have to be solved at a larger scale than what the intentional communities movement is capable of solving on our own. And that's just my personal take on it. That's not a dancing rabbit stance on anything. You know, there's a whole bunch of us here who have lived in much more diverse places, and we really miss it. Like, I'm, I'm not sure that it's a matter of our members not, um, you know, not having had exposure to different cultures. Um, I do think that there's places where that's a problem. I don't think that that's the primary problem that we're facing here, though. I think, um, I mean, nobody who lives at Dancing Rabbit grew up in this part of Missouri. You know, we just were all imports. And, you know, have all come from different places. And many people have come from urban centers that were very diverse. Um, yeah, so I, so I don't know how much of a factor that one is. Actually, that's probably the more honest way to respond to that. You mentioned um, that part of the, the problem with our culture is that it's very individualistic and very um, kind of bootstraps and, and, you know, everybody focused on their own families and, and not looking at the big picture. So... Do you think that um, that that is part of the problem that um, people are seen as disposable and or exploitable, and that big corporations and money-driven uh, institutions are only concerned about their own well-being and they're not being civil and thinking about um, sustaining uh, the environment and the people around them to to keep the, the country going? Is is that one of the issues? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, and I think that you're right. I mean, you put your finger on it pretty directly a few minutes ago. I mean, the, you know, traditionally environmental activism and even that phrasing has been a very liberal white middle class thing in the U.S. And I'm, I'm preferring to think in terms of like economic justice and ecological justice, like rather than activism. And I think that's really more 
to the point, because a lot of the same reasons why we are where we are around climate change are the same reasons why we have massive wealth inequities forming in the U.S., and it's the same reason why racism is so stubborn. I mean, all of that stuff is related to each other, and so I think that we're not really going to solve a lot of these problems if we're not willing to take on um, working with and learning from, you know, a lot of these communities that, you know, frankly are on the front lines of climate stuff and have been for a long time. Like, the, you know, on average, one person a week dies in climate change-related activism work somewhere in the world, and 60% of those people are indigenous people. Like, there is a very strong leadership contingent of, you know, people of color out there in the world who are working on these issues, and I think that a lot of climate stuff, um, it's to their detriment that they're not really doing, you know, building across those bridges, and so I, I think these economic and ecological issues and social issues are very intimately tied in with each other. And you agree that um, a lot of uh, climate um, activism is ultimately to help people in in third world countries or here in the U.S. who have social and economic and um, discrimination issues and that without the ecologists or the people trying to change that, that their situation is not going to change. Yeah, absolutely. You can't see this, but I'm nodding wildly as you're talking. I, I absolutely think that that's the same root cause. I mean, we have a, a culture that is very, very individualistic, and we have a political system that is very much dedicated to kind of corporation rights more than it is to human rights. And I think that those that that's exactly how we've gotten here is through a cultural and economic and political paradigm that is. Um, you know, I mean, the reason why we're calling this new project Materialized Empathy is that our culture lacks empathy on a very fundamental level. And when I say we, that's not a Dancing Rabbit project. It's a, you know, it's a different organization that's doing that project, but that's exactly where that's coming from. It's like we need to actually look at if we were materializing, like bringing into physical reality empathy, that would look completely different than what we've been doing in our political and social systems up until now. And um, so I think I think you're absolutely right on in seeing all of those things as being connected and that that's the root cause of a lot of this. And community is a great place to unlearn selfishness. <laughs> you know, it's a terrific training ground for that. Okay, so the challenge is um, we had a show where we talked about, you know, when, what has drawn people to... Um, to move away from greater society and start their own communities. And like you mentioned, maybe that's, that's been going on for a while, but um, is there, you know, is there a little bit of escapism uh, or this uh, kind of conspiracy theory that when the system collapses, you will have your own sustainable place going on? Or is there within the uh, intentional communities, um, community or, or organizations a desire to bring those um, those type of uh, community-oriented projects into the bigger cities where um, it might be more challenging or more difficult to, to enact, but at least start creating those same type of environments in, uh, in greater society? Well, I think that all of those things exist in the communities movement. I mean, I think there is uh, there are threads of, 
escape is in and communities that are based on that. There are threads of conspiracy theories and communities based on that. Um, there's a lot of communities that um, see themselves as being, um, you know, Diana Lee's Christian from Earth Haven uses the phrase life, uh, lifeboat communities that, you know, she sees eco-villages as really being like, you know, when the ship goes down, you want your lifeboat and that that's what eco-villages are. Um, so I think all of that exists and I also think there's a way that this is about the least escapist thing that you could be doing, that the wider culture is really good at training us to be escapist in lots and lots of ways, and that what we're doing in the communities movement is actually, you know, in a lot of these communities, it's actually leaning into what's really happening and what really needs to be happening, and that that's kind of the polar opposite of escapism. Um, there also are many communities that are urban you and I are living in rural communities right now, but there's actually plenty of urban projects and, you know, lots of interesting stuff happening in urban centers. And I absolutely think that what we're pioneering in the communities movement needs to be brought into cities. And it has been in some ways. Like one example is that, um, you know, the, the car co-op was something that sort of was pioneered in intentional communities, originally mostly income-sharing communities where, Sharing cars is a no-brainer, like you own everything together, so of course you're going to own your cars together. Um, but then we do that at Dancing Rabbit, and we're not an income-sharing community. And now you're seeing programs like Zipcar and all of those other things are, that's a direct application of a system that was originally pioneered in the communities movement that's now been exported into these urban environments and is being tremendously impactful in a very positive way. Um, not only on carbon footprints, but also on people's personal finances and people's, uh, you know, being able to embody their own values more. So I absolutely think we need full-fledged intentional communities and urban environments, and we also need to be taking what we're learning and importing it in, you know, these different kind of bits and pieces. So how many of the things that um, the alternative uh, movement from the 60s and 70s um, has brought in into our greater society because um, in my many conversations I talk about how a lot of times things are fads or they're cool for a while and then they go away. And like now with the hipster movement, everybody wants to be green, everybody wants to be alternative, but are they really making the sacrifices and the compromises to get there? And then what do you see um, that is time-tested from uh, the early um, intentional community movement that has pass uh, along to the great society other than the what you were saying about uh, shared vehicles? Well, I mean, that's, there's a whole bunch of different things that, that could be said about that. I mean, one of them is there's been a lot of pioneering work around social dynamics and cooperation. And if you look at what's happening in a lot of the more interesting, like, startup companies that are happening right now, it's often um, a far less hierarchical approach to things, much more creative, much more collaborative. And, you know, certainly that wasn't only the intentional communities movement, but that is certainly one of the threads that sort of started in the 60s and 70s of looking at things like collaboration. And so I think um, that that movement has matured um, maybe most intensively within a lot of intentional communities, but those threads are out there all over the culture. You know, you look at things like almost everybody um, knows what nonviolent communication is these days. Like, that's a very common thing. And, like, those kinds of, you know, communication techniques are ones that are very similar to a lot of what we've been doing in the communities movement. Um, I think organic food and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that was totally a hippie thing. 
originally and, uh, you know, and is now, you know, the fact that Whole Foods is like almost a big enough company to be a corporate baddie at this point is a sign where like we've really integrated some of that stuff out there in that wider culture. So I think there's lots of different strands um, that have moved out into that wider world. You know, the um, one of the interesting economic things is um, thinking about like wage ratios within companies and that is tied into the kind of egalitarian the same kind of egalitarian thinking that got a lot of groups to opt to be income sharing where everybody's work is, is equally valued or more equally valued. And so some of those values have definitely filtered their way out of our more alternative bubbles and into that wider culture. So, you know, I do think that we're being influential in a lot of ways and that there are a number of things that are very prominent now, um, at least on the, you know, the more progressive end of, you know, the political spectrum that, you know, definitely come out of that same, the same roots that the communities movement um, was kind of front and center in in the 60s and 70s. Are you guys involved in any political activism or organizing? Uh, here we have the Summertown folks for Bernie meeting at the farm. And um, is there anything going on among your community or to help pass laws or um initiatives to, to help the environment that you guys are a part of? Um, we have chosen as a community as a whole to not actually do much with politics. And, you know, we certainly have individuals at Dancing Rabbit who have done a lot, and we have a um, the, our county's chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby is centered here at Dancing Rabbit. There's a number of very active members with that. Um, a few years back, there was a... Um, a confined animal feeding operation that was wanting to come into the county. And we were very politically active within our county with getting that slowed down and eventually, you know, heavily regulated when it finally did come into the county. And so we have had those pockets of it, but that's not really been our focus. I mean, Dancing Rabbit's focus and, you know, the Center for Sustainable and Cooperative Culture, our nonprofit, is really focused on more on spreading the word about lifestyle options than it is on being explicitly involved with politics. Um, so, you know, the, the more political action that's happening here is more happening in pockets with individuals doing that kind of work. Do you think that, um, that a change in the, in the way people um, deal with the environment uh, can happen from a grassroots level um, more readily, like, can happen better if you get all the people involved than it is from the top down, just passing laws and regulations to stop uh, climate uh, change? Well, I think that they're both really important. I mean, the, the thing is, if you've got laws on the books that make it harder to do this stuff, then it's creating a situation where people ha are having to swim upstream, which is part of why we're starting this materialized empathy project and focusing on policy stuff is that we keep bumping into those limits and those barriers so I do think that the top-down stuff is important to work on. I also think, though, that the grassroots is where we figure out what the right answers are. You know, we're pioneering what these lifestyles are going to look at at a very grassroots level, and I think that that's really essential. So for me, it's not really an either-or. It's like I think we need to be doing both. Um, I think we need to be doing community organizing outside of intentional communities. I think we need to be doing, you know, economic organizing, things like local food co-ops and all that kind of stuff are, are essential to this. And I think it's when 
you know, if you think about the grassroots sort of rising up and shifting things and then the legal and policy stuff from the top down sort of trickling it down, I think it's when those two things finally meet each other that we're going to have a real solution to this stuff. Um, but I think it is going to take both both things in order to really make the biggest difference on that and get us to the point where we've got the world that we want to be living in, you know, that is not, you know, driving ourselves off a cliff in terms of the climate and some of these other ecological issues. So I watched the uh, Mar- Morgan Spurlock CNN show, which had the two New Yorkers come to uh, to your place, and um, the the way that it was portrayed was that um, it's just there was a lot of interventions when these two characters weren't living up to their commitment to be there for a month and be green and be uh, sustainable and all that. There was a lot of like. Let's talk about it. And I don't know if that was CNN trying to dramatize the way that your place works, but um, how much of that is true that uh, you're constantly challenged to be more green and more natural and stuff like that within your community, or is it just something they they picked for the show? Um, So it is definitely something that they did for the show. I mean, they they got partway through the time that they were here filming and they decided that we weren't being exciting enough and so they um, they amped up the drama a little bit with some of this stuff. And so that was definitely happening. I mean, I would say, though, that there is, that there is some degree of us, you know, inviting challenge from each other about environmental issues that we really want to be doing better and it's not... You know, this isn't a place where it's like in-your-face confrontation, like that's not what you're going to get. But I do think it's a place where it's okay to ask questions about are we doing well enough collectively in these areas that we say are really important to us and that we have regular engagement on that. And, you know, we have a, um, a group that's called the Eco-Progress Committee, and their job really is to be analyzing us and, you know, looking at where could we be doing better and where are we kind of falling down on the job we also, within the nonprofit, um, one of the really unique things that we're doing at Dancing Rabbit is that we're working on um, researching and documenting what we're doing really clearly. Um, I think a lot of us in the intentional communities movement feel really good about what we're doing, but we don't have hard numbers to back it up. And so our nonprofit is working on getting some of those hard numbers. And since we've started consistently eco-auditing ourselves, we get feedback, you know, each year on, so here's where our numbers have gone up, here's where they've gone down, here's where we're doing well, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that we want to be improving. You know, we see still lots of room for our own improvement ecologically, even though we're doing so much better than your average American. Um, we think we could be doing better. And so I would say that the drama from 30 days was the part that was made up, but the trying to be conscientious about it and being willing to talk about stuff, like that's not made up. That is part of what we do at Dancing Rabbit. So how does your community deal with conflict? Because I've seen communities start off really excited and tons of people, and then slowly there's debates and conflict about the way the future of the place, and then they they collapse. So is there... um, a procedure? Is there a, a group of people? Is it a mediation community, um, mediation group? Like, what's the process to deal with just personal interactions and things that sometimes get out of hand? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and that's a really good question. And that is the thing that, you know, most intentional communities that fail, fail because of these social dynamics. That's the biggest thing that kills these, these projects. And we have, we were fortunate that we had pretty savvy founders who understood that um, dealing with our social dynamics was going to be part of what we had to do with. And so really from the beginning, there's been a pretty high level of commitment to training and that, you know, initially was mostly around our consensus process, which is a good training ground for conflict resolution, too, because it's really about listening and trying to figure out how to take other people into account, and that's kind of the same thing that you're doing with good conflict resolution. And at this point, what we've matured into is that we have a conflict resolution team um, whose job it is to support people when they get into conflict with each other. Um, we have an expectation, and we actually sign as one of our membership agreements that you will resolve your conflicts peaceably with other people here. Um, so we make that commitment, and we ask people to make that commitment, uh, you know, right as they're walking in the door. Uh, and we have a number of things in place. We have a mediator pool, and it's very common for people to ask for mediation if they're struggling with something. Um, we also have been working the last few years with a thing called restorative circles, um, which is a, a technique that was created by a guy named, a Brazilian man named Dominic Barter. And we've gotten, there's a number of people that have gotten training in restorative circles, and so we use that particular tool um, pretty regularly when things come up, and that can be used for just a couple people who are in a conflict, or if there's like 12 people involved in a conflict, um, it's a pretty flexible tool. Um, we also regularly have NBC trainings and that kind of stuff that are made available for people. So we're, um, you know, we try to keep our skills building in place because we see this as being culture change work that we're engaged with in community and that that means we're also going to change as individuals. And so we've got that as a pretty strong commitment. What's the membership process like? Our process has two main stages to it. Basically, you have to have come and visited Dancing Rabbit before you can apply to become a member of the community. And that application process involves writing a letter of intent and then going through an interview with, a, it's called the Membership and Residency Committee. And they've got a standard set of questions that the community is interested in hearing people's answers to. And they will publish a transcript from people's interviews and make a recommendation about whether we should accept someone as a, um, as a resident or not. That's actually the first stage is called residency, which is kind of like a provisional member pe membership period. Um, it's very rare that we say no to someone at that stage. Every once in a while we do, but um, typically we say yes to people who are applying to be residents. And then um, your residency starts once you move to Dancing Rabbit, and you have to be a resident for at least six months before you can apply for membership. And at the four-month mark, there's a built-in uh, invitation to offer feedback to the new resident and also for the um, new resident to do a self-evaluation of how they feel like things are going for them, how they feel like they're acclimating, what are the challenges, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then we do that about the four-month mark so that people have a chance, if they get feedback, they have a chance to sort of recalibrate and grow into a response to that feedback if they want to. And then at the six-month mark, we basically do the same process again. You send a letter of intent, you go through the interview, the membership and residency committee makes a recommendation, and then you get accepted as a member. And at both of those times, it's a consensus process where, um, you know, anybody can object to someone becoming a member. 
Um, again, we do that very rarely, but we do every once in a while say no to someone. Um, so that's our basic process. And while that's happening, you have a liaison who is the person who's supposed to be helping you get oriented and sort of settled in and answer all your questions. And you also have a process mentor during that time who helps you understand how decisions get made, how to deal with conflict if it comes up, that kind of stuff. So that's our basic system. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Take care, David. Thanks. Bye-bye. Show descriptions and content are available online on our Facebook page and on SoundCloud.com. The Mystic and the Skeptic podcast is broadcast Wednesdays at noon on Radio Free Nashville at RadioFreeNashville.org. We would like to thank the Independent Media Club at the farm for their continued support and Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance.